this Advent season, we've been asking some questions about hope. Uh, because uh, in general, that's sort of a theme for Advent. Um, Advent is a time when we remember what it was like uh, for the people to long for the coming of Christ in the first place. There's that uh, 400 years of silence uh, and darkness that exists between the last words of the prophets in the scriptures and then the word of Christ that comes in the New Testament. Uh, And then a lot of us have known our own versions of long waiting and silence or darkness uh, looking for hope. And so this year, like, like any year, we want to ask questions about hope and waiting during Advent. But we wanted to be uh, brave and thoughtful about taking those questions into some real-world issues, things that we're actually facing. Because sometimes at its worst, church becomes the place where we pretend that things aren't ha- happening when they are happening. It becomes the place where we just kind of live in denial. And we've never wanted to be that kind of community. Uh, rather, we want to be the kind of uh, church that talks about the actual things that are happening in the world and goes on the hunt for hope in those stories. And so today we get to do that again with a, a member of our South and City Church family and a friend of mine, uh, somebody that I'm really grateful for us to learn from. Uh, you'll get his background and I'll explain more to you about why we want to hear from him about hope. Uh, but will you please welcome Daniel Benura. Hey, Daniel. Hi. Thank you. Good morning uh, again. Welcome again to the stage. Um, so, Daniel, tell us a little bit about like, where you're from, and this is going to begin to get us into why we might want to ask you some questions about Christian faith and hope. Uh, yeah, thank you, Jason. Uh, so, I am from Bethlehem. Uh, so, take a look at me. I look like Jesus. Um, so, I was, I was born in Jerusalem. Uh, my family is from Bethlehem. Grew up in, in, in the Middle East, in Palestine, uh, so I'm a Palestinian Christian. Um, my family, uh, the Palestinian Christians, have been there in the land for the last 2,000 years. We're the descendants of the Church of Pentecost, the Church of Jerusalem. We continually lived there, and were the witnesses of Christ in the land of Christ. My family had been Christian before your pagan families became Christians. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> But I'm saying this, I'm making the joke just to make the point that we as Christians in the Middle East are indigenous, are, are an essential part of that community in the Middle East, that Christianity is actually from there, and we've, we've always kind of been there. So I'm a Palestinian, I, I'm, my identity is a Palestinian one, I'm a Christian, I'm also an Arab, I'm someone who speaks Arabic, which is also, as it happens, the language of Islam, the language of the Quran and so on. Um, now, I, uh, I go to Notre Dame. I'm a PhD student at uh, the theology department at Notre Dame, studying the Quran and biblical theology. Um, moved to South Bend last year. I can maybe talk about my experience and why I'm here. Um, I met my now wife, Shannon, in Bethlehem two, two years ago. She came with a friend to Bethlehem, and we uh, ran the Palestine Marathon. Actually, we walked 10Ks of the Palestine Marathon, but that's where we kind of solidified our relationship. And as we are kind of walking through um, Bethlehem in that marathon, that's when kind of we talked about, hey, there's a wall here, there's a checkpoint here, and so on and so forth. And that was the beginning of our relationship. I got into Notre Dame, and this was last summer, and I was still in Palestine. And then we were kind of exploring what kind of church we want to go to. And a friend recommended South Bend City Church, so we listened to the podcast, and then the first uh, podcast I listened to, Jason was talking about um, the issue of uh, racism in the U.S., and the church was going through Tisbee's uh, The Color of Compromise. And that's when I kind of realized, hey, this is a church where I can feel I belong, especially because there's a lot of sense of homelessness that I feel in many churches, where especially my identity is frowned upon or ignored, even vilified in many places. And then the second uh, sermon I listened to on the podcast, Jason talked about Palestine Israel and how that was impactful for Jason. And I'm like, hey, Shannon, this is our church. You know, so, and that's kind of been our experience, and we've been here in this church for the last year, and we also lead a table group as well for young professionals and grad students. Yeah. I was so excited to meet Daniel. The way that I found out Daniel was a part of our community is it's kind of embarrassing. Um, not really. I'm proud of it, actually. Uh, we were doing uh, what some people call baseball church over at Four Winds Field when we were meeting outdoors uh, during warmer weather to kind of avoid COVID risk, and uh, I was... I got a notification on the church's Instagram feed that the church had been tagged on Instagram. 
And so I was like, oh, I'm curious what somebody's tagging us for. And so I look at it, and it's like during the gathering, I think. I'm down in the dugout during the worship set looking at Instagram on behalf of the Lord and the church just to, you know, make sure our mission is secure in the world. And so I, I see yeah, Daniel tagged us in a story, and then I follow his profile, and I, you know, it's very clear that you're a Palestinian, and I'm like so excited. I'll explain more about that in a minute because I just, you know, I want to have a Palestinian friend so I can tokenize him during Christmas. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but anyway, so then I like used the picture that he took from the stands to try to triangulate like where he was in the stands. And I ran up and stalked him after the gathering and uh, introduced myself in seriousness. One of the reasons I was excited about it is, uh, if you've heard me preach, you might've, you might know this about my story, but my first trip, uh, to the place that Daniel's from, uh, was about 11 years ago. And, um, long story short, like it's where my faith went to die and then be reborn. Uh, it died there in a sense because um, the faith that I took with me into that first trip had nothing to say to the experiences that I was witnessing. Um, it was a very narrow and, and shallow faith that had never asked questions of Jesus about justice and how to live in a world that is that broken. And the things that I saw there really disrupted me. And um, and I came home with a different faith than the one that I went there with. And I'm um, to this day, like really grateful for that because it's, um, it's a better one than the one that I started with. And so, um, so I've been excited to get to know you, Daniel, and to just learn from you. Um, and grateful that you and Shannon are here. And, uh, specifically in this season, we're talking about hope and we're talking about things like, like what's broken in the world. Like, for example, like justice questions. Uh, a lot of us have been on like a learning journey in this community, uh, discovering more and more, uh, just how broken things are. Um, in many different ways. And um, you have a very particular experience of that. And so I wonder if you could take us a little bit into um, why we would want to hear from a Palestinian Christian about what it is to hope in the face of injustice. Yeah, I think so. When, when, when you hear the word Palestinian, probably what comes to mind is Israel. What comes to mind is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So I grew up in that reality. Um, some of you might know about the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising of the year 2000. That I was a teenager then, and that was a very impactful experience for me. I had a, a classmate who was killed. I had a cousin shot. A lot of terrible experiences for me that I had to go through. And then my faith was formed as I was trying to make sense of all of this, where is God in the middle of suffering when I know that there are Christians out there, and we can talk about this, who support what's happening, support Israel against me. And then I was like, I'm a teenager, and I'm, f- I'm afraid of dying, and I'm like praying before I go to sleep because I can't sleep because of all the bombing. Hey, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus, save me kind of thing. And that was kind of my experience that I, my, my journey towards faith is born out of hopelessness and violence and, and death. And that's the experience of many Palestinians, this kind of sense of entrenched injustice and violence committed towards us. And it's been the story of Palestinians for the last 70 years since the establishment of the State of Israel. And I have a map here I can show you just to give you kind of a glimpse and understanding of what life is like. So before 48, in the early 20th century, Palestine was controlled by the British system of colonization of the indigenous populations. And you had Palestinians living there. Muslims, the majority were, but also Christians. I think around 11% then were Christians, but also Jewish Jewish Palestinians were living there. And then after the Holocaust, a lot of Jewish migrants started coming to Palestine to look for a home for them, especially because of the legacy and history of the Jewish people in the land. So that's in 1946. You see there's some kind of Jewish kind of communities being formed in Palestine. In 1948, the map in the middle, the war, uh, war of independence, what Israel calls, what Palestinian calls the Nakba or the catastrophe, where now Israel had control over the majority of the land. Now, until and up to six, 1967, that's what Palestine looked like. Now, the majority of the land, about 78% of the land now is called Israel, and Palestinians are either became refugees or are squeezed into what we call the West Bank on the west side, on the west side there, on the east side, I mean, and the Gaza Strip. So when we talk about a two-state solution, I might, you might have heard the term two-state solution, is that map, the fourth map there, uh, where t- Palestinians, the local indigenous populations, would have sovereignty, justice, over 22% of what they call Palestine. Today, the map looks like this, where 
the whole land is basically under control by Israel, by the also maintained by a, a brutal system of, of military occupation. And then Palestinians are trapped in a system of a Bantustan system that is very similar to the apartheid system in South Africa, where every aspect of life is controlled by a certain ethnicity, and uh, indigenous populations are managed in ghettos, the Pantustan system. Does this sound familiar to you? Indigenous populations being trapped or squeezed or pushed out. And that's a Palestinian story. So it is a, Palis- a story for me as a, f- a story of colonization and of settler colonialism and of racial supremacy. Uh, so it is like a trench, that kind of sense of injustice and hopelessness is entrenched in that, especially because this system is also maintained, abetted by the, um, the American government. It's a very bipartisan issue. There's a, a general agreement among uh, both parties that we need to support Israel. And for me as a Palestinian, it's like, wait a minute, this is a story of tragedy and of injustice, but it's still maintained by the American uh, government. Now, this system is maintained through systems of checkpoints, of walls, what we call the apartheid wall. Actually, now the system that exists in the land is officially called apartheid. The Human Rights Watch organization deemed the system to be an apartheid system. And now the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is uh, launching an investigation into possible war crimes committed by Israel. So that is the reality for me. And I actually have a picture to show you done by Banksy, uh, kind of, and this is at the season of Christmas here where like Mary and Joseph are trying to get into Bethlehem, but they cannot go into Bethlehem because of the separation wall. There's an issue of settlements as well where Jew-only villages and towns are being built in the West Bank. So my family, for example, in Bethlehem, we lost 11 acres of land to build a Jew-only settlement. Um, there's an issue of, uh, that is a continual issue for a lot of Palestinians. Actually, in the last few weeks, 10 Palestinians, 9 Palestinians were killed in the village of Bietta by Nablus, protesting against the annexation of land. Um, most recently, a person called Jamal Abu Ayyash, who was killed by Israeli military forces. Um, refugees, we have 5 million refugees today who used to live in what is called today Israel, but now are stuck in refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, and even within the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So it's a very harsh reality of, like I said, apartheid fundamentally and of subjugation of the Palestinians, their lives, their movements. And every aspect of my life as a Palestinian is maintained and controlled and managed by a military racist system of apartheid. So uh, we went from zero to 100. Um, like we jumped pretty quickly into what's a really um, painful status quo. Um, and I know that for some in the room, you're probably like uh, aware of what Daniel just described. For others, this seems very like new information. Uh, for others, I imagine there's like a, a narrative in the back of your mind, which as you hear Daniel's description, you have this kind of like, but what about dot, 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 and then there's like other explanations and stories and narratives about the situation there. And if I can just like speak to us church for a moment and say, um, I think it can be a real act of, of faithfulness and um, honoring our convictions to like hear this. Um, you, you know, like this isn't theoretical for Daniel, right? Um, this is Daniel's lived experience. And I think um, it's really appropriate for us to kind of like process this together, you know? So uh, if it's n- new perspective for you, man, I'm so glad you're here today, right? To, to learn from Daniel. Um, and we kind of want to like ask like some questions from this experience, um, both about the actual situation you described, but also about what you have learned about hope in that experience. Um, I hope for a lot of us today, we'll take away a growing awareness about the actual situation you're talking about. I also hope, um, whatever you are up against, uh, personally, whatever we're up against in our neighborhoods, uh, in our communities, like I hope we'll like realize that we have some wisdom that we can gain here, um, to take with us into those other situations that we are up against. Um, because there's a particular context you're describing and there's some universal questions about hope. And we want to hear all of that here. Now you mentioned this already, uh, briefly, but, um, just to make sure we're hearing this too, it can feel like what you just described is happening way over there. Um, and doesn't feel that connected to our lives here. But that's not really true, is it? No, absolutely not. Actually, so a lot of this um, 
experience for me as a Palestinian is, is born out of theology, right? And it's not my, like, I study theology, right? So I, I do theology. Um, and, like, Christians historically have done a lot of bad theology um, and continue to do that. And that's fine. No. Uh, and that is fine, but then when that theology has some ethical, like, felt real experiences, there's a huge problem that we are using the Bible to justify oppression, and we continuously have done that throughout our history. You know, the U.S. is an example of this, right? And many colonial powers are an example of this. And a lot of what's happening in Palestine and Israel is related to what we call Christian Zionism, which is an, an ideology that came about in the 19th century by many Christians in Europe and then also in the U.S. based on what we call dispensational theology. Uh, but this is where, as a Palestinian Christian, I don't feel like persecution from Muslims. I don't experience this in Palestine. What I feel, what, what, what I experience, and that kind of touches on the issue of hopelessness and also homelessness, is that my suffering and my experience is based on the outworking of theology done by my brothers and sisters. And it's actually, and you, if you look into this, a lot of American Christian support is, is, exists because of churches, because of seminaries that teaching that we have to support Israel. Uh, this is God's calling for us, and those who bless Israel will be blessed. And that kind of theology that has made me as a Palestinian, one, either I'm an obstacle to God's fulfillment of his prophecies, or I have to, I'm, I have to be disappear, uh, disappear, I have to be absent because I, should, I don't fit into God's planning. And that's where I become invisible or I become the enemy of God. And, and I'm hearing this from, from, from Christians. And actually, I've heard this once that because I'm an Arab, because I speak Arabic, therefore I'm a descendant of, of Hagar. And therefore, my God's calling for me is to serve the Jewish people. And this is the same theology that was used to justify slavery, right? That, you know, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Hagar have to be enslaved to the descendants of Abraham. So this same theology still works itself out in very ugly ways. And also politically, like the U.S., and this is where all of us are responsible for this. It's not far away. The U.S. every year gives $3.8 billion in military aid to Israel. So every day... 10 million of your tax dollars go to support that system that hurts, that objectifies, that um, disenfranchises and hurts a lot of Palestinians, including Palestinian Christians. And that's why it's not far, it's not removed from us. This is our theology. These are our churches and also our tax money that is used to sustain a status quo of oppression and apartheid. Yeah, I know when I came back from my first trip uh, to the region, my journal that I kept during the trip, there's a page on it where I wrote in big capital letters, and I, I, I rewrote it like I traced over it because it was such an intense takeaway for me. Uh, it just said, theology has consequences. You know, and I think we can sit over here um, and preach things from pulpits and never really be confronted with what those messages are doing in the world. But theology gets unleashed in the world, right? And... Um, it's important for us to think about what we preach and teach and what we're spreading. And is its fruit in the world, the kind of fruit that Jesus taught us that we could expect when we preach the gospel, right? Or is its fruit in the world violent or oppressive? And if so, we could probably go back and check our math and ask ourselves where we got it wrong, right? Um, so it's sobering to hear that, but I think it's important because if we want to grow up and follow Jesus in the real world, we should, we should learn some of these things, right? So thank you for um, taking us into some of that. Um, so you've spent your life li living in a, uh, a fairly entrenched and complicated reality that um, is violent and oppressive. And you spent your life as a Christian. And um, one of the things I keep learning is if I want to really get to the good stuff in our faith, the things that can sustain the riches, the the gifts that our faith has to give us in the world, I'm often best asking people who have had to figure out what that faith can say to them in really hard circumstances. And so, um, so I want to ask you a little bit about hope, Daniel. Um, I know from my abbreviated visits to the place that you call home, I have had my hope really challenged, but I get to leave with my American passport when I'm done. And um, I wonder on the days when a better future seems 
impossible or, or days when you feel most confronted with the, the way things are, like, where, do you, where do you turn for hope, uh, specifically in the story of our faith? Like, what, what move do you make? Yeah, that's a good question. So since I am from Bethlehem, kind of it takes me back to Bethlehem, right? It takes me back to that moment of incarnation that God is in the flesh with us. And if you ask me, like if you press me, like why are you a Christian? I would tell you because of the incarnation, right? Because God is present, because God is among us, and God gives God's self to me and to everyone, and um, and we all carry that uh, that presence of God in our midst right now through the church. So fundamentally, for me, it goes back to that understanding of God, the God who cares, the God who's in our midst, the God who is with those who suffer. So where do you find Jesus today? You find Jesus with the homeless, you find Jesus with the immigrants, you find Jesus with the ethnic minorities, you find Jesus with the, those who are dispossessed and disenfranchised. Um, and, I, and I think of when I look at the scriptures, when I, when I look at the gospel, when, when Jesus proclaims that his, he came to proclaim liberation and freedom and justice, um, that's, that's Jesus for me, right? And when I read the Beatitudes and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, that blessing and belonging is given to those who suffer for the sake of justice, for those who are merciful, for those who are thirsty and hungry for justice. That's kind of the gospel for me. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about, if you don't care about the least of these, you don't, you don't care for me. You're actually anti-Christ if you don't care for those who suffer. And, and so that is the gospel for me, that it's a good news for everyone. It's a good news for me as a Palestinian. It's good news for uh, Jewish kids. It's good news for Palestinian kids. It's good news for black kids, for white kids, for immigrants, for natives, um, for everyone, especially those who suffer. And that is good news to me. So there's that moment of incarnation that God is present, especially with those who suffer. And then out of that and Christ, you know, goes and he leaves the Holy Spirit with us. And then we, the church, become the, the feet and hands of Jesus. That we are about that business of redemption and reconciliation. And last week we talked about uh, creation and global warming and so on. And I think it kind of goes back to the garden. And I think the Bible, the whole story there is a meta-narrative of this, of this story of paradise lost and paradise regained and all of us are kind of in this journey to be, towards restoration and then jesus comes in the gospel and he says you know what the kingdom of god is here in our midst it's like a tree it's like a seed that grows into a tree it's like a treasure in a field and there's kind of this like farming imagery that he's using and i think for the jewish person in the first century palestine he's thinking wow there's a there's a story of restoration and healing and i think the church ought to be that people that is a steward the stewards of earth who are bringing about that new reality of goodness where you know swords and would be formed into plowshares and justice and reconciliation would happen so i i ground my my faith in that when i feel hey this is a brutal system hey this is supported by the strongest country in the world the you know israel has the strongest military in the middle east a nuclear power i see the disruptive counterintuitive um upside-down kingdom of Christ that he brings about healing and truth and liberation through the hands and feet of him on earth, the church. So that's, I think, where I, where I find it in these kind of two movements of incarnation. First, the uh, incarnation of Jesus in Bethlehem in my hometown, <laughs> and second, in the incarnation that I hope to see. And I'm seeing, and there are some encouraging signs of this, of the church that is also being incarnate in the lives of those who suffer Mm-hmm. Um, and, and can I think, hopefully that would, and for me at least, ha- that has been the formative uh, sense of hope mm-hmm. in the midst of hopelessness. Yeah, so let's press a little further into those two incarnations that we talk about. But before we get there, uh, I want to I take one step back because uh, I want to make sure I give you a chance to address this question. Um, and that has to do with, um, you know, you, you've given a description of the situation over there that has a lot of critique in it of Israeli policies and American policies. Um, you pointed out when you showed us the map that a lot of uh, European Jewish movement into that land was in the wake of the Holocaust, which is um, one of the most heinous and evil things like we've seen in human history. Um, and even recently, we've seen a, a rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. Um, I think it's just helpful to like, clarify and ask the question uh, about the difference between criticizing policies versus being anti-Semitic. 
and I don't like me to put that on you, but I think it's important to bring up here. Do uh, you want to talk about that for a moment? Yes, um, I have to, I think. I, I think we need to, yeah, we need to about, be aware of these things. And for, for a Palestinian, it's, it's tough for me also to deal with this because there's a tendency for me to be apathetic towards the suffering of others, especially if, I, if I'm experiencing suffering from them. But then when I look at the Holocaust and I just see how vile and evil that crime was and how vile anti-Semitism is and continues to be, and, and it, it breaks my heart, and I, because, especially because I feel injustice, I have to be in solidarity with those who suffer and those who suffered because of their ethnicity or their religion and so on. But I think we sometimes, especially in the discourse right now, that the Holocaust has been weaponized to silence Palestinians. So the, the mantra that has been used by those who advocate for Israel and so on is never again. We would never let this happen again. And that has been used to justify the militarization of Israel. That has been used to justify the colonization of Palestinians and the military occupation. And I think we're missing the point. And I think the, you know, the lesson of the Holocaust, I think, is that everyone is an icon, that all of us have worth and dignity, that all of us are worthy in God's eyes. So therefore, um, a Jewish kid has the same worth and value just like a Palestinian kid, just like a Yemeni kid, just like a black and white, and, and so on and so forth. And that is the lesson of the Holocaust, I think, at least for me, that we dare not again, never again, should we discriminate and and subjugate and victimize people because of their ethnicity uh, and their background and so on. But the same thing that what's problematic is that I feel that descendants of those of that suffering have become now my victimizers. So the victims have become the victimizers. So it's a bit very hard for me. But I think fundamentally my my conviction is because I'm against anti-Semitism. Therefore, I am for Palestinians. Therefore, I am for justice because that is the lesson that we have to hold consistently, that we have to fight for justice. We have to fight for mercy and goodness and reconciliation for everyone despite their background. And that is fundamentally the gospel, right? Like in Ephesians 2, Christ destroys a wall of enmity between people. Galatians 3, there is no now difference between Jew and Gentile. All are one in Christ Jesus. So that is kind of the lesson that I see and and we have to fight against every system of oppression or racism or segregation or white supremacy or racial supremacy. Just like we fight against anti-Semitism, we fight for justice for Palestinians. We fight for justice for native, natives and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and that's a consistent ethic that stands in solidarity with everyone who suffers, whether Jewish, whether Palestinian, and so on and so forth. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really uh, important reflection. Uh, you talk about these two incarnations. Incarnation can be kind of like a feel like a technical word or an, you know, an academic word. I mean, it literally just means like in flesh. And this thing at the center of the Christian story that is so peculiar and beautiful is the idea that God like actually lived God's life in the vulnerability of a human life. Um, I remember, and I've told this story before, but a few years ago I was in Washington, D.C. And I'm having dinner with a friend and a friend of his. And uh, they're both engaged on matters in the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. And so my friend's there at the dinner with me and his friend's at the dinner with me too. And um, he does that thing to me, the pastor, that I can't stand, so don't ever do this to the pastor. He asked me to like share something from one of my sermons like with her at the meal. Like just don't do that, dude, right? So like we're talking about the issue and he says, oh, Jason, you should tell her what I heard from you earlier, like from the scripture and Jesus and all this stuff. And I'm like, ah, and before I can even start, she cuts me off. Uh, she's a human rights lawyer who advocates for one side uh, in the conflict. And she interrupts me and she says, no offense, but Jesus has nothing to do with this. We're talking about a deeply entrenched, complicated status quo involving militaries and occupation and empires. And the funny thing is the more she described the current situation to help me understand how Jesus had nothing to do with it, the more struck I was at how it was very much like the world that Jesus actually lived in and the experience of Jewish people in the first century living under occupation and dealing with all kinds of injustice and brokenness. It, like, it really moved me closer to realizing that like, when we see God in Christ, we are seeing God live God's life through the life of a man who faced the very kinds of things that we're talking about. Um, and I, I think solidarity is a word for that, right? Like divine solidarity, God with us, um, not as some like abstract feeling, right? I, I know for me too, um, ap apart from the particularities of what's happening um, in Israel and Palestine, I, uh, this has been like the most 
saving thing in my life, I think, uh, which is to discover God living God's life in, in Christ in an act of solidarity with us when we were up against the worst things. Uh, for me, it was in college, and I am going through four or five years of just this awful mental health journey. I mean, I'm, um, I'm so depressed. I'm failing my classes. I, I can't make it through a day or a week. And I eventually uh, admit myself to a hospital where I spent 10 days just trying to work it out. And I came out of the hospital and, um, and then was dealing with this really profound sense of abandonment and divine failure. You know, like, I feel like I did everything right. Like, I went to a Christian college for Pete's sake. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Like, I was going to my counseling appointments and the pain got worse and worse. And when I was trying to work out the feeling of divine betrayal that I felt, I found myself praying this particular psalm from the Old Testament. And so I spent a few days or weeks just kind of nursing my grudge against God by praying this prayer from the Psalms that protests God for being absent and fickle. And it wasn't until I'd spent like a couple of weeks like hanging out in this Psalm and like shaking my fist that I realized that it was Psalm 22, which is the very prayer that Jesus prays on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I I know for me, that experience of divine solidarity in my pain was the most healing thing I could experience. And I hear you saying that one place you turn um, when things are really bad is to that divine solidarity that we celebrate in the Christmas story and in the, the whole arc of the Gospels, right? Uh, you also mentioned uh, that other incarnation, the church. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but like in the New Testament, the circle that you are sitting in right now is called the body of Christ, right? I mean, we are one little part of the global body of Christ. Um, but that's a complicated place to turn for hope for you, isn't it? You've kind of alluded to this, but say a little more. Yeah, exactly. When I, when I feel that I'm being betrayed by my brothers and my sisters, um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Like the, the main, I feel like the suffering of my people is sustained by those who are my, my brothers. Um, and, and, and that's why I felt this sense of homelessness and you know, like, what church can I actually go to that I feel could be a home for me? Hopefully, thankfully, South Bend City Church has been a home church for me and Shannon. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough it's tough to work with, with this when I'm actually seeing myself in solidarity or in the same kind of place with my Muslim neighbors. Who are, like I have some of the most remarkable friends who are Muslims, and I feel that those who oppose me and hurt me are actually my, my spiritual brothers and sisters. So it's, it's a tough journey, and like it's been a struggle for us. Now we as Palestinian Christians have been trying to speak up, and thankfully like we are now starting to get places where we are given agency. People are not telling us what to believe and what to think, but actually we are given the microphone to speak for ourselves. So there's a dignity that is given to us rather than being obstacles. Now we are being able to speak. And there's a, I think there's an awakening to what's happening there. I think also people are able to make the connection between the struggle for equality and justice in the U.S. with the struggle and for struggle, for equality and justice in Palestine, and there's an intersectionality between the two, um, but still, still there's there's a there's still a big problem. Uh, when I see a lot of you know Christian brothers and sisters are given millions of dollars to support this system, funding the settlements which are taking land from the Palestinians, including my family, like I said. Um, but there's there's a journey, I think, and I'm I am, I'm finding hope in a lot of things. I'm finding hope in this church, from this in this family here, and and I'm, it's it's happening slowly. But you know, like just to think of Dr. King and the intersectionality that the the moral history of the, of the, the history of, of the moral history is an arc. It's long, but it bends towards justice. And I think I have that. Hopefully we can have that prophetic understanding, and this is kind of what Dr. King was entrenched in, that kind of prophetic message of justice rolling like a tide, of equality, of black kids and white kids playing together. And that's kind of my vision also. Like, What I want for Palestine Israel is to have that future where, where Jewish kids and Palestinian kids can play together. But that's where we need the church to be active in this work and to shake off all those tendencies toward violence and support of 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 you know supremacy and and one favoring one over the other into creating this kingdom of God that receives everyone uh, as one. Uh, last week uh, in the conversation with Jim Stump around like creation care and climate change, we looked at this text from Romans five, and I ju- I just can't stop like meditating on it. It it just seems to keep speaking to me in these conversations. Um, Paul writes and says, "We know that suffering produces perseverance." 
perseverance, character, and character, hope. And I just keep kind of like meditating on these words and kind of wondering about the relationship between them, between suffering and perseverance, perseverance and character, and character, hope. And I think what's really standing out to me in these conversations is that I think another way of saying that would be that when we suffer, we are given the chance to become something. Right? Character is like, who are you becoming? Right? And character is the thing that is expressed most when the world doesn't want you to live up to who you are. Right? When there's sort of pressure around you to be less than what you are. Right? And he seems to, Paul seems to think that like that character being forged in us, us becoming something in response to the world around us is actually like a source of hope. Right? And when I think of us becoming something, uh, response is one word, resistance is another. Um, that we would resist the way things are when the way things are is not right, right? Um, so in light of that, like, you've had some acts of resistance in your life that you've enacted um, right. in the face of this conflict. Tell us a little bit about that. Right, so for many Palestinians, you cannot find hope. And especially for many Palestinian Christians, many of them have opted out. So there's a phenomenon of the brain drain of Palestinian Christians who tend to be educated, more affluent, and who left the land. Others, and a large number of Palestinians suffer from PTSD and a lot of trauma and hurt. And the even, even talking about PTSD doesn't make sense because there's no post to the trauma. The trauma is still ongoing. So this is like an open wound that cannot be healed because it still keep gnashing at it and keep beating it. So the, if, to be cynical and to be hopeless is a very real thing. Um, now, Christian Palestinians have, for those who com- are committed to stay in the land, have committed to respond to what's happening theologically and different ways. And, and one of the ways we have been able to address this is through uh, understanding our witness as an act of resistance. So we say, we ha- as Christians, we have to resist. Now, resistance is a very Christian thing to say. We have to constantly resist evil, especially our own evil, our own tendencies towards violence and hatred. And I know growing up, I had to find my own hatred and anger towards those who were oppressing me. So there's that resistance to my own impulses of hatred and of violence um, towards others. But then at the same time also, how can we find creative ways to resist? And, and, the, and the, the model in, the, in, in the, the gospel is it's clear, right? To love the enemy. How do I love my enemy? Um, and, and that's kind of what we as Palestinian Christians say. Our duty, responsibility as Christians is to resist in the logic of love. That I have to resist evil, but I do it through the logic of love. And one way of doing this, which is a foundational, is maintaining the icon of every person. That, that enemy is actually made in God's image and likeness. And my responsibility is to love that person through my resistance. And, and that's kind of, and that's kind of, when people, you know, talk about Israel-Palestine, it's like, actually me being critical, me resisting is an act of love where I'm saying, hey, because I care about you, you have the potential to be a good system, a good person. I'm, I have to resist this evil that, and we talked about this at, at church a few weeks ago about uh, turning the other cheek and what does it mean, that active resistance. So one example, I can talk about this resistance, which is what we call the beautiful resistance, where we take what is ugly and what is vile and what is violent, violent and shape it into something that is beautiful. So in 2015, Pope Francis came to, to Bethlehem, Palestine to, to pray, and there's a famous image of him praying by that gate. This is at the wall itself in Bethlehem. Um, so friends of mine, we decided to go and paint a stencil of Pope Francis. You can see him, so that's me in red there, and you can see like the stencil of the Pope there in white. So our idea was like, let's go stencil the Pope on the gate, and then next to his um, kind of stencil, we can plaster the Franciscan prayer, God, make me an instrument of your peace. Now, as we were doing this, uh, you can see the opening in the gate. Soldiers came out. They threw a stun grenade at us to push us away from the gate, and they had their kind of machine guns pointing at us uh, to forced us to leave. So this is us moving away. You can see me holding the spray can in my hand and kind of waving at the soldier. We refuse to respond to evil by evil. We refuse to be enemies. We're going to just wave a wave of peace at you. And so eventually we just went to a different side of the wall. And you can see this in the picture here. And the next picture where we finished the stencil of the Pope and then we plastered, uh, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. So this is where we are saying, hey, we refuse to hate. We refuse to be enemies we're going to have hope and we're going to use this ugly wall of separation of apartheid and and make it a canvas where we can come rather than 
being instruments of violence, we can be instruments of peace. Where there's despair, we can have hope. Um, and that's kind of been the message of many Palestinian Christians uh, in that land there. Uh, there's such a paradigm there. Um, we didn't talk about this at the nine, so you're welcome. You're getting the bonus. Uh, but it strikes me like, I mean, not to be obvious, but like um, the cross is this um, vile instrument of violence that becomes an instrument of peace, right? It's right there at the center of the story that somehow God and God's act in the world can turn an instrument of violence into an instrument of peace. And I, I mean, it's like a beautiful paradigm for uh, like all of us. I just think like wherever you're up against it, right? Wherever there is, um, whether the violence is personal, relational, uh, like wherever you find it to ask how we do that, right? Yeah, and, and this is a beautiful kind of example as well because Christianity, the gospel has a very like weird and backwards way to deal with suffering, like where we try to evade suffering, especially in our like economic kind of reality where we want to look for pleasure, for streaming, for drive-throughs, for deliveries. Christianity says, I'm going to walk the Via de la Rosa. I'm going to walk the path to the cross. And then Christ goes and he embraces the cross. And that system of violence, of systemic racism and oppression becomes peace, becomes, brings about life. And for me, like Friday is not the end. There is a Sunday coming. And so we see that when you see Christ on the cross, we go embrace suffering, but rather than being um, defined by that suffering, we bring about a new reality of life and goodness and justice there. Mm, that's beautiful, man. Um, now, for, for some in the room, uh, we want to learn more. Um, others might be feeling a little skeptical of some of this because it's just so new for them. It's a perspective that's just very foreign. Um, others are like ready to like jump in. I want to draw your attention to a couple of opportunities coming up for us, uh, for people in our community who want to become students of the thing we're talking about, about peacemaking. Uh, these are opportunities that we've been working on for a couple of years, but the pandemic uh, caused them to get tabled for a while. But I'm really excited that we're back to planning these. So tell us as the organization, that the, that's actually the group that I've traveled to Israel-Palestine with on all of my trips. Um, and they partner with communities like ours to help us as people grow in the way of peacemaking. And they do that by like taking you to places uh, like Israel-Palestine and exposing you to um, many different narratives. They, they kind of take the kid gloves off and they really uh, put you face to face with the people and the experiences that are happening there. And then along the way, not only will you hear a lot of really hard stories, but you'll also be really inspired by some of these beautiful acts of resistance that you talk about. And then you get to kind of come home and figure out what to do with it. But we get to do that together. So, uh, so we have trips coming up, and I want to make sure that you know about these. You might want to start thinking or praying about whether you want to be a part of one. Uh, in March of this coming year, we're going to go uh, right here in the U.S. to the American South. And this is a pilgrimage that will take us to places like Selma, where we will firsthand um, see and hear more about some of America's own history of racial injustice. And then in the fall, in October, we're planning a trip to Israel-Palestine, uh, hang out with Daniel's family in Bethlehem. And uh, this will be a chance to, again, have uh, a really complicated experience there. If you're interested in these trips, keep an eye out on our website. In the next day or so, you're going to see a link on those main boxes. Um, we're, we're asking you to like, take some time, think and pray about it. And then if you're interested, apply. Uh, we, we, probably, we may not have enough room for everybody who wants to go on these trips. They're, they're very tailored. And it's kind of a right-sized group for the trip. Although, if these go well, we'll keep doing them. So we're asking you to apply just so we can kind of understand uh, where you're coming from with your interest for the trip. Uh, these trips are pretty expensive. That's just kind of a reality of travel, especially because Telos is committed to honoring all of the people that you'll meet with so that we don't just exploit them to hear their stories without you know, paying them for their time and all that. And so um, we do have some scholarship dollars set aside. And uh, another part of the application is to let us know like, what you can afford. Um, Obviously, those dollars are limited. We don't have infinite scholarship dollars. And so we're going to do the best we can uh, to make this trip possible for the people who want to be a part of it. So fill out the application, um, and we'll be getting to have like some meetings about these trips coming around the corner. And then um, one of the ways that we're raising those scholarship dollars is with our Christmas offering. So the last couple of years' Christmas offerings, part of those Christmas offerings have gone towards scholarship dollars for those trips. That money is still there. We haven't done anything with it. It's earmarked for these trips. And then this year's Christmas offering, in addition to what we want to uh, do here in the city, last week we talked about the teacher's wish list and about 
about welcoming refugees here in South Bend. Next week, you'll hear about some opportunity that we have to resource kids ministry. But today, I want to point out to you that part of this year's Christmas offering will also go toward those Tell Us scholarships so that members of our community can go on the trip even if they can't afford it. Uh, where we're at in the Christmas offering, our goal this year is 75000 uh, As of last night, $18,000 has been given, which is amazing. Um, Christmas offering tends to be like a slow burn around here. Like uh, Usually the back half of December is where most people make their gifts. I've not made my Christmas offering yet. I'm still doing my math and trying to figure out what I'm going to be able to give. 11 individuals and families have given so far, uh, but we do hope that that participation number goes up between now and the end of the calendar year. If you want to get to the Christmas offering, just go online to our website and make sure you choose Christmas 2021, and then everything you give will go toward all the different causes that we've talked about in the Christmas offering. Sound good? Good. Okay. Uh, That being said, these trips, um, you know, they're not accessible for everyone. They're time away and there's money involved and all that. Uh, Tell us what more we could do uh, for anybody who's like, I want to do something with what I've heard today. Yeah, for sure. I think there's plenty you can do. So please don't feel overwhelmed or, hey, I don't care about this stuff. I'm invested in my local community. Yes, please be invested in your local community. But there's plenty that you can do, especially because I kind of implicated all of you when I talked about taxes and how your money is going to support this system of, of violence and oppression. So you have to do. It's not an option, I think. You have to do something about it. The least you can do, the least of your faith, is to pray. To pray for, for justice and peace and reconciliation. But also, you can also be involved in more active work, like um, talking with your representative or being, being involved in educating people, educating yourself, and so on and so forth. If you want to read, there are plenty of resources available for you. I'm just going to highlight one of them. It's a book written by a mentor, a friend, and at that point, um, my boss, while I was teaching at Bethlehem Bible College, Pastor Munderus Haq. Um, he wrote this book last year, just came out, The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. And he does a fantastic job explaining the reality for many Palestinian Christians and also kind of reflecting on this kind of dichotomy he does between lament and hope. And kind of while we as Palestinian Christians lament the reality on the ground, lament that sense of homelessness and betrayal we feel from our brothers and sisters, we can still maintain a healthy hope. And there's kind of this healthy balance of lament and hope. It's a fantastic intro to a Palestinian Christian perspective. And also the book has a number of references and other books that you can look into. So there's that in a limited way you can do. And, and, and like, I think we always say this as Palestinians, come and see, come and see what life is like, come and see and meet the beautiful, wonderful people that exist there. And hopefully it would be an experience where it actually could be very transformative. If you can't do that right now, there's plenty that you can still do until then. Yeah, just a voucher. My last trip uh, in Bethlehem, uh, our group met with, say his name. I, I said Munter Isaac. You said it way better. Well, I say it in Arabic, yeah. Munter Ishaq. But way better, right? Yes, yeah, anyway, yeah, we, we met with him, and we sat and learned from him for a while, and it was really insightful, really helpful. So definitely grab that book. Uh, as we go on this learning journey as a community, there'll be other resources that we'll highlight uh, as we prepare for that trip. Um, so lots that we can do. Um, uh, I wanted to share this as we kind of wrap things up. I own one Christmas ornament. I don't even have a tree. I just have one Christmas ornament. And this is a, and it's my favorite Christmas ornament because it's my only Christmas ornament. But it's also my favorite even if I had others. Um, so I actually brought this home with me from my first trip in 2010. And it's, it's interesting looking. You know, it's, I don't know. It's kind of a dinged up metal canister with a ribbon around it. Um, I brought it home because actually what it is is it's uh, a Christmas ornament made from a spent tear gas canister that was picked up from the streets of somewhere uh, near Bethlehem, I suppose. Um, I brought it home. Um, and by the way, I, I think these are so meaningful. I, I gave them to all of our staff for Christmas a couple of years ago. And uh, I, I think the reason this is so meaningful to me is I just like, I think I realized a long time ago, I can't do another Christmas that's just like sugar and um, Americanized warm fuzzy feelings, you know. By the way, I'm all for sugar and warm fuzzy feelings. I'll probably watch Elf later today, just as a palate cleanser on this whole conversation. Um, but I, I just can't. I couldn't do like another Christmas like that, you know. So I brought this home, and the one reason I don't have a Christmas tree is I don't have any other ornaments I want to put up yet. So I just have my one. I could do like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, I guess. Um, but every time I look at that, I just think about um, like this is the story we're celebrating that God with and through us can transform the violence of the world into peace. 
But it takes bravery and faithfulness and hard work and hard conversations. And it will probably bring our hope to the brink. There'll be times when, because we face these things, it'll be harder to hope. But I don't want cheap hope. Like, I want the hope that comes from doing the work and going all the way into the darkness. And um, I, don't, I don't want any version of faith that can't do that, right? Because if our faith can't do that, then I think it's counterfeit. And I'll go find something else to do with my time, right? But if, but if, if what we've been given in Christ is the invitation to be part of God's story of transforming broken systems and violent things into peace then like I don't know what else to do with my life but that right like what a beautiful invitation um and you've given us such a gift today in uh, sharing this Daniel um I asked Daniel if he would give us a benediction I'll get to that in a moment but first of all I think we should uh, honor acknowledge um what it is for Daniel to share all this with us and yeah right Yeah, we are, we're really grateful, Daniel. You have given us a, a real gift today. Um, so uh, as for a benediction, Daniel and I were talking, and we thought, what if we turned back to that prayer of St. Francis that you plastered on the wall? And um, what if we made that our, our prayer today? Um, but I thought it might also be fitting if we first heard it in Daniel's uh, native language of Arabic. And so Daniel's going to read it for us, and then we're going to make this our prayer together in English, and this will be our way of parting. So if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And uh, don't forget the grace and peace thing. Okay, you got this, dude. Ya Rabbi, istamilni adatan li salamika. Fazra al hubba wal gufrana makan al hikdi wal karahiya. Wanshur al haqqa wal itilafa badal al dalali wal lamubala. Ayuha Rabbu, istamilni adatan li salamika. Fahrin al imana wal rajaa muhariban al shakka wal yasa. وبث النور والفرح طاردا الظلمة والكآبة. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is error, truth. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grace and peace be with you.